by Nation Potatoes. I'm your host, IRL Emmy McDonald, here with my co-host, IRL Alex Martin. Hello. We're here. Together. At at last. At long last. <laughs> at long last. For the first time. Ever. <laughs> well, not ever, but... We've never met. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to meet you. Um, no, this is the first time we've ever recorded this podcast um, in person. Usually we're doing it in our... Um, Creepy little headsets, a couple hours away from I feel each like other, a couple hundred. Marketer when I wear that headset. Yeah, I thought I would feel like a pop star, and I don't. I feel the opposite. Yeah, I feel like I'm about to harass people for money. Um, so Alex is in town for the week, so we are recording the pod live and in person. Well, not not live for you guys, and also not in person for you guys, but live and in person for us. So, yay us. Um. We are here this week to discuss John Darnell's Devil House. Um, And if you're listening to this and you're a subscriber on the main feed and you're going, why can I listen to this? It's because as part of our spooky season extravaganza, um, we wanted to make a book club available to all the folks on the main feed so you could kind of get a taste of what you're missing. (laughs) Would you say that that's accurate? I, yeah. See see how, how great the content is over here? Yeah, you listen to our soothing voices. Right, right. Every... Blown away by our intellect. Just kidding. <laughs> Just as, as impressed with us as you would be uh, in person, which is staggeringly, always. <laughs> <laughs> so normally we do a little bit of idle book chat first, talk about what's going on in the in the book world, um, but I don't really have anything today. Do no. you? I guess next, the the Booker winner comes out on the 17th. I haven't read a single book from the list. Perfect. Great. Um, you know what so I did notice? On the Booker website, um, there are excerpts of some of the shortlisted books being oh. read out loud by actors. Oh, fun. And one of them is done by uh, the actress whom we love, whose name I do not know, from Marcella. Oh. Which is very exciting. Did you ever watch the third season of that? Yeah, it completely went off the rails. That's what it seemed like. Yeah. Her blonde wig was great, but everything else about it was just absolutely disastrous. It made no sense. If you're going to go off the rails, at least. Yeah, it's like, it was like, how did we go from like, we think you killed your husband's girlfriend to this. Like that you're now you're an international super spy. It was it was a very like diehard arc where it's like one day you're a regular cop and the next <laughs> you're you're just absolutely like invincible and indestructible. <laughs> and yeah, it was it it was wild. It was do not recommend. But anyway, love the sound of her voice, would listen to her read a book. So um that's on there. Um, a French author, Annie Ernaux, I believe is how you pronounce it, um, won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Haven't read the book. Haven't, well, not the book. Haven't read any of her books. Um, probably could. Could give it a go, but really don't have much more to say than that. That's it. That's all I got. Are you impressed yet? (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like you're getting, well, I was going to say your money's worth. You're not paying anything. So this is what you get, guys. Sorry, this is it. 
other than that, though, so we are, um, this is the first of our spooky seasons reads. Uh, we are going to be doing three book clubs this month, um, which is a lot. We, so we'll talk about it a bit more at the end, um, but in the book club um, for paid subscribers, we're also going to be reading um, Stephen Graham Jones's uh, My Heart is a Chainsaw, and we are going to be reading Rivka Galchen's um, Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch. Um, so if you do enjoy the next hour and 30 or so minutes, um, you know, feel free to join us over in the book club uh, to uh, participate in those. Um, and there will be, alongside this podcast, there will be a discussion thread and a playlist, which, if you ask me, um, second only to the dulcet tones of both of our voices, um, is the highlight of this book club. The playlists absolutely rule. So... You'll get one of those, too, um, probably in this same email. So scroll down. Um, other than that, you ready to get into it? Let's go. All right. Every time I say let's go, I now I just that Tom Brady commercial. <laughs> and I I've tried I've tried to stop saying it. I can't lie. <laughs> uh, Tom Brady is having a particularly spooky season honestly yeah man's is starting to look like i mean he is dead in the eyes yeah. there is something he's, real sunken about sad, what's I going think. on there. yeah he's having a tough time giselle is one foot out the door anyway um we hate him <laughs> that's all i have to say um, <laughs> we're gonna try to not go on a complete yes football sidebar um so, as we said, this was one of our um, spooky season reads, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that, because in our pre-production discussions, um, it has come to be that we have learned that we each felt a bit bamboozled by this book. Yeah. Bamboozled by the marketing. Yeah. You all might feel bamboozled by me, who really right. sold the audiobook version of this. Right, right. Um, and both of us who who claimed that this was... I mean, I think in the last podcast, I explicitly was like, it's a horror book, like, <laughs> it, which was wrong. It was just blatantly incorrect. Yeah, but that's... But, like, that's what was told. I felt like that's how the book was marketed. Good, let's blame them. Yeah. <laughs> advertising <laughs> um i mean that's how the book i felt like was sold a little bit was that it was like in that genre right or at least would have a spooky kind of like mm -hmm. edge leaning and you know we said this in our earlier conversations like it is i guess it's ironic to say that it's not in spookier or in the horror genre well the context of the book contents of the book are kind of horrific right right um but it doesn't feel, you know, it, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like genre fiction. Right. No, not at all. Not at all, really. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think one part of that, you know, obviously, like, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> but like, we all do. It's human nature. And um, the cover of this book is obviously like, it's very referential to specifically like 
80s trade paperback horror fiction kind of stuff. Um, my sister, <laughs> who is also in town, um, asked if she could guest on the podcast tonight. And I said, you know, have you read the book? And she said, no, but I have looked at the cover and I really liked it. 9.2 out of 10. And I was like, that is not enough to contribute to the <laughs> podcast. Um, but yeah, everything about the way that this book was like packaged and marketed didn't, I mean, I think you're right. You know, there is part of it where it's like, there are details to this book that like would probably be incredibly off-putting if this was marketed as literary fiction, which it kind of is. Um, you know, to the average reader, but it, uh, it, there were, you know, then it, it didn't go to the point, right? Like yeah. it didn't, it went too far for literary fiction and not far enough for like what you would expect from horror. Um, and I don't mean far enough in that, like that's to the book's detriment, but just in terms of like slotting it into a specific yeah. place, um, which is interesting because I think that almost plays into some of the larger questions that the book raises. Yes, it doesn't. Every part of this book, and we can get into this more from like the way it's laid out to the subheadings, chapter titles, the perspective, everything feels so intentional. Mm. And it, it feels specifically like it's always trying to like not be what it seems, put you in a different perspective, challenge your expectations, and it does that right from the jump. Right. I really thought, I mean, I guess spoil this is where if you have not read the book, hit pause, come back. Right. Or don't read it and keep listening. I'll never know. <laughs> um but like I thought in the first We're not half, gonna check your homework. <laughs> I'm not gonna check your homework. I thought when I was reading it at first, I was like, oh, this is going to be a story about this author, Gage, right. who moves into this house and, like, loses it right. a little bit. Kind of, like, loses his grasp of reality, of the story, uncovers things. Maybe this house, quote-unquote, place is really, something's, like, really haunted about it. And that right. is not at all where the book Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think I had a similar sense. I might, I mean, I was like, I thought we were getting ghosts. I was pretty sure we were going to get yeah. ghosts or ghouls or something, you know, otherworldly. Um, and then when it got to a certain point in the book, I was, I was starting to go like, okay, this feels like it would be too late to introduce ghosts. So like, is it going to be that he gets too close to the story and finding out what happened? And, you know, like I was yeah. really holding on to... I think my notion of what this book was going to be for a while in spite yes. of the evidence piling up in the text itself that like this was not going to be what I thought it was. Um, but like one thing that we talked about in our last episode when we were we were actually talking about some of the Booker um, nominees, the shortlist, and, you know, we were talking about breaking with form and I think one of the things that, you know, that can do and that this book does is that when you, when this book is written the way that it is, right, where, like, all of a sudden, like, I mean, you think you're going to get this 
this book from Gage's perspective. And then it's not just that it switches perspectives, but it's that like all of a sudden you're inside another book. Mm -hmm. And then, and then all of a sudden we get like the song of Gorbonian or whatever it's called. Like, and you know, that's like a complete shift in like, you know, the language, the time period, the subject matter, like, you know, you're like, did he write this one? Like what's going on? Like, and all of that has the effect of, making you feel off kilter right because it's like it it just it kind of and it does I mean it all kind of comes together in the end where you understand why you got all of those pieces but for like 470 of the 478 pages you're like what is going on like why are you showing me this like and and then it does kind of I mean at least that was my experience with it is like it clinched it at the end and you go, yeah. oh, okay, I see. Um, which is always a really satisfying experience as a reader. But the whole rest of the time, like, I was just, I felt like I couldn't get my feet under me with yeah. this book. Like, I was like, am I missing things? Like, am I, do I? Yeah, and I, you know, listened to it, as I've said. And then it changes from when it you're with Chandler right. in that chapter. Then it switches to the, was it the White Witch? Mm-hmm. I, like, had to re- rewind and, like, mm-hmm. do that twice. And I actually ended up getting the book on my Kindle from the library because I was like, I I think that I maybe missed a whole chunk of text. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think this is the first time either one of us have audiobooked for a book club yeah. read. Um, and uh, I did the same thing. I, like, the Song of Gorbonian chapter specifically, I was driving somewhere I listened to it and I was like, okay, I know what's going on. And then I got there and I was like, I don't think I retained a single word of that. So I had to go back in the ebook and reread all of it to be like, so what's going on here? Because they're just like throwing Welsh names at you and you're like, what's going like it's (laughs) like did my like audiobook glitch yeah like literally I was like am I like reading another book like is this how does this happen like I'm like ready to call the library and be like guys something's wrong like there's there's been a a, you know a bug um but no it was just that this book is absolutely all over the place and again like not necessarily in a negative way but just in a way that was very surprising to me his voice is so pleasant it is it's lovely Yes. My only, maybe this is a toxic trait, but I do listen to audiobooks on almost two times I don't know how you do that. (laughs) Um, And it's fine if there's a lot of narration, but as soon as there's a lot of dialogue, people sound like on the fringes of reality. Just like like, seconds away from a break. That's the very last chapter. Yeah, because he talks really fast at normal speed. I was like, oh, I get that he's supposed to be kind of like... Maybe a little bit unraveling, but right. not, not like this. Um, you sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks, yeah. like just like. Meow, meow, meow. Yeah. Um, good. Does good, anyone good, else good. do that? Would love to. Know. <laughs> I actually, I like don't. Fa- I can't fathom how you can understand anybody talking that fast. Because the I the thing I talk the, really fast, so maybe I'm like. Do I? I. I mean, yeah. I don't think I talk at two times speed. <laughs> let again let me know yeah personally criticize alex in the comments um no i 
it's funny because like when I try to read the audiobook at the same time that I'm listening to it, it's like I can't <laughs> brag. I can't put the audiobook fast enough to keep up with how fast yeah. I read it like in a way where I can still understand the audiobook. I don't know. Maybe I'm losing my hearing. That could also be it. My brother wants me to go get my ears checked because he says <laughs> I never hear him. And I'm like, is that what's going on? Are you sure? Anyway, that kind of leads into the the next thing, um, which is that you mentioned that the, you know, the perspectives um, shift in this book. Um, and also that, you know, like it even down to the chapter headings like mm -hmm. there is so much in this book that is so intentional um so did you want to speak to that at all in terms of like what what yeah, you I felt like that achieved I think it was confusing to read as a you know as a first time reader and then you get to the end and you're like oh he was doing that intentionally mm. You know, I think he says, I think it's in the very end of the book where he's like, you know, it matters what story you tell. It matters whose story you tell. And right. I think changing the perspective, having it in second person actually did that to you as a, a reader. Mm. You're like, oh, this story is very different when you're like you're reading it like you are the White Witch as right. opposed to you are. Is it Jesse? Is that the kid's yes. name? Like mom and it. it I thought that was very affecting. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, and one thing, and I think you had mentioned this when we had talked about it beforehand, but like, it is interesting that the two places in the story that he chooses to use second person, right? And put you, the reader, in, like, inside someone else's perspective are part of the same story and two characters whose experience was diametrically opposed right and like both in terms of the crime itself and the way that we can kind of assume from what we know about the white witch that Chandler wrote about them right like yeah. you know he makes the choice in writing the white witch to kind of stake out a defense of this woman the white witch of like the ways that she was sort of victimized here and why she should have you know, maybe not should have, but, like, why it is defensible in some way that she did what she did, right? Which is kind of, like, a cutting-edge take, right? Like, yeah. that's, I mean, that's what true crime writers in a lot of ways, not all true crime writers, but, you know, that's a really exciting thing, like, as any kind of writer, to find it, like, a story where you can go and flip it on its head, right? And it's something different than what people might have expected that's something that gets eyes on things is to you know read a book and go oh this is a new perspective on something that I already thought I knew everything about um and so he chose to do that with the white witch and then you know the letter from the mother kind of reels it back in saying that you know and she doesn't even really say that like you know oh what my son did was you know, defensible or, or anything yeah. like that. But I think, you know, her quarrel is more with the fact that in staking out the position that he did, he drew a caricature of her son, right? And made her son a certain type of person 
that she didn't feel like was representative of who he was, you know, and then and then did indicate in some way that like he deserved it. Right. That like yeah. he he had it coming to him, which is rough <laughs> to say the least. Right. And I think, you know, as he's reading, Gage is reading the letter, he's kind of like, oh, yeah, she's right. Like, you know, his mom, you know, in this example was just a chess piece in my story to move around. Right. To, you know, fit my the narrative that I was trying to tell and how damaging that can be. But I think what he wrestles with and I, I think maybe true crime authors might wrestle with is no matter what story you choose to tell, you are probably doing that to someone to some extent. Right. Um, which I think like brings us or like kind of makes me think of the question like is true crime inherently exploitative right just to some extent right right yeah and because it's you know by nature of the fact right that when we're talking about true crime you know we're talking about like a perpetrator and a victim right if you break it down there are really there are only two ways to tell that story right it's that the perpetrator did something unjustifiable and the victim did not deserve it or you flip that on its head and it's that somehow there is a justification for why the perpetrator did what they did. And therefore inherent in that is like that the victim deserved it in some yeah. sense. And so in either one of those positions, there are going to be, you know, you're, you're always, there's always somebody that's kind of getting the short end of the stick. Right. I mean, it is about, you know, the people who are literally involved in the case, but it's also about, you know, their family members, their friends, their communities. And then, you know, it's it also speaks to sort of the broader conversation in general, because the way that we, you know, talk about crimes, talk about all these things like they do have, you know, impacts for the way that crimes are handled by law enforcement and and all this kind of stuff. Um and, you know, I mean, one of the things that I I think is really interesting is that, like, I, I think Darnell sort of poses that question, right, mm -hmm. of is true crime inherently exploitative and then doesn't necessarily answer it, right? Like, this, it leaves it open and, you know, in the final scene, gauges wrestling with it you know he's he's kind of up against it in terms of you know what he is going to do what he has done how he feels I mean that that's part of the question too right of I mean obviously I think part of why he's making the decision that he does with Devil House is because he has guilt about the way that he's yeah. done it before so it's like it's out of an abundance of you know, caution, but also like guilt and remorse and all these other things of like, I don't want to do this to somebody again, you know, and um, the sort of mysterious friend characters like I don't like who are you trying to save or who are you trying to protect? And I think maybe that's part of the answer is like he's trying to protect the people that he's already hurt. Like he's trying yeah. to protect the people that it's too late to protect. Right. You know, I do think it's an interesting question because I would say that you know, I do think that there are merits 
in some ways to talking about true crime. And obviously, you know, I'm not generally of the belief that like everything that we consume has to be for our personal betterment. Now, obviously, there's a line between things can be neutral and things are exploitative. Like yes. you don't want to be going like, okay, like I'm consuming things that are just like bad for everybody involved. Like, um, but I do think that there are merits to true crime and you know and it is such a like it's such a case-by-case thing because it does truly like you can't say that every victim of every crime feels a certain way about whether or not the story's been covered you know like and you know because some people want their story covered they want their story heard that's where they find a lot of you know healing and and all of these different things and then there are some people that are like you know, I mean, one example is um, the the thing about Pam, that uh, Renee Zellweger oh, series yeah. that came out. So before that was, and I, I do want to kind of talk about like narrative crime a little bit, um, because I think that's a related leg of this conversation. Um, but before that was a narrative series, it was a Dateline podcast. Um and Dateline did a series about it. And, like, you know, obviously having Dateline cover something is very much so a different thing than having Renee Zellweger play a murderer on TV. Um, and, like, the girl who, the woman who's the daughter of um, the woman that Pam Hupp killed, you know, came out and was like, I'm tired of having to relive this, you know? Like, I don't, having an Oscar nominee play my mother's murderer does not feel good to me. So I, I think it's, you know, and it's it's a personal thing in terms of the feeling of the people themselves, but it's also, it it like, it does depend on how much care you take when yeah. you're creating something like that, you know, and how much that's a, of a concern to you as a, not you yeah, personally, but like, it's like... Whose story you're centering, right? Like whose perspective is the story, you know, where are you sitting within the story, I think has a big impact on on that. Right. Um, I think, you know, there's obviously the new Dahmer show has come out from Ryan Murphy, and there's a lot of this conversation happening around, around that show. And I think the same thing, right? People who are victims of that, of those crimes are t- tired of reliving well, right. It was a truly horrific experience. Right. Um, and I think that that show is a good another example of this. What right. We're, what we're talking about here. Right. Where it's like nobody feels like, oh, you know what we really wanted was Jeffrey Dahmer's perspective on this. Yes. You haven't watched that, have you? No, I have no real like desire to. Yeah. Um, and we talked about this before, too. I don't love. I don't really love narrative versions of of true crime. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't like Candy. I'm trying to think of other ones that I... I skipped um, The Staircase, which was oh, yeah. the Colin Firth, Tony Collette one, because I've seen the documentary. And honestly, that whole case just makes me kind of be like... Like, everybody involved yeah. makes me nauseous. I, I I agree. I mean, it's... And it's weird because I, like... I mean, I do enjoy, like, crime books and mystery books, but it feels like a lot of times in television... Um, there's, I think there's a lot more space dedicated to narrative reimaginings of true crime, right? Which is a very different thing than, like, a police procedural, you know? Um, 
And even when police procedurals like draw on, you know, details of true crime, it's like it's a very different thing than, okay, this is a reenactment, not a reenactment, but but essentially, right, like of something that we've already seen in documentary form hurt, you know, and part of it for me is like, when I already know about something, I'm not interested in the narrative version, because it's like, okay, so what now, like, I know the facts of this case. And now somebody's given you a license to narrativize it, which means, I mean, in places you can lie, right? Like that's what, I mean, that's what fiction is. Fiction is just an elaborate, it's an elaborate web of lies, which is great. But I don't think that that's like, it never feels super productive to me where it's like where I have to sit there and like fact check it, you know, but it's also, I mean, it just kind of gives me the ick. Like I just, I don't, like watching it you know I just don't I find it unpleasant I don't I don't need that perspective like I don't need the perspective of Dahmer I don't need the perspective of of these criminals right in a fictionalized narrative version of like what was truly horrific right it feels it feels exploitative it feels bad and I think when you are watching a show that's totally fiction and you're in that perspective Mm-hmm. That's a different, that's yeah. different. It feels different. And I think, I think a show that did a decent uh, show I liked, um, Mindhunter. Oh, yeah. Which I guess is a narrative. Yeah. Um, kind of fits in that bill. But again, it's like, it's the perspective that you, you know, you're with right. the two detectives and right. it feels different. Yeah. There's, there's never really a push to... I mean, you are, there is a lot of trying to understand the psyche of Mindhunter, for those yes. of you that aren't us. Um, it's about the creation of the BAU, the Behavioral Analysis Unit, at the FBI, um, which was done by John Douglas. Am I right? They give him a fake name in the yeah. show. But um, it's basically the unit that first said, like, we're going to study serial killers to try and understand you know, the methodology here because there are patterns. Um, And it's, I mean, they invented the term serial killers. Like it literally did not exist um, prior to this in the 1970s. Um, So they do have people playing, you know, the real life serial killers who were a part of the creation of the BAU, the performance of, what's his name? Cameron. Oh God. He plays Ed Kemper, Cameron Britton absolutely i mean unbelievable like you watch a side by side of this guy and ed kemper it is unsettling and the dude that plays charlie manson very creepy but it's so you get a lot of the you know you i wouldn't say the perspective i mean you get scenes with these killers but it's never in a way that makes them feel they're never really intended to like give them sympathy or give them you know um you're trying to understand they're trying to understand their right. mind right and, and their behavior and their motives but it never yeah has any desire to sympathize right with them to center their story right um, yeah which is a very different thing it was never canceled and has not been renewed i know and he, he's just like i'm busy which is fine <laughs> but like doing what david but what else are you doing 
I know. Besides I know. giving me season three of Mindhunter. I know. If you haven't watched the show. Oh, it's so good. It's excellent. Oh, like the performances from everyone are just yeah. absolutely captivating. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, oh my God, that sun. Hmm? Oh. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Give me a watch freaking it. I don't want to want to spoil anything. Oh my God, maybe I'll rewatch it. I think I've watched it all the way through twice. It's so good. Man, it's so good. Yeah, also, sidebar that. recommendation, also from The Finch. You can always watch Seven. It's spooky season, ladies and gents. It is. Do it. I always, I've rewatched the first season of American Horror Story, I think for the last like five years during this time of year. What's the first? Oh, the house, house? Murder, house. murder House. You know what I just found out recently? I've been walking around my house for years, like literal years at this point doing the what's in the box what's in the box no one else in my family has seen that movie not a single not one of them dad. i made my sister watch it and she was like so that's what that was and i was like did you you seriously didn't even know like what that was for and she was like i i go i do that all the time and she goes yeah i heard you i just kind of like ignored <laughs> it like i'm like every time we get a piece of mail i'm like what's in the box like nobody cares like, like it's not funny anymore. oh my god like it was just one of those moments where i'm like i am an island like I, it was just it was so that's truly a... isolating to realize that nobody knew my movie reference no one in this entire house like are you kidding me i'm just alone out here i being brad pitt in part because of john mulaney but also because i like the movie the fugitive quote the fugitive i don't think that's my wife i know besides my mom and you has seen that movie um so my dad my dad's the other person that's seen that movie because my dad was like you should watch this movie harrison ford's great (laughs) yeah it was like a movie my my mom was like you should watch this yeah i was like 11 i walked into the room and like harrison ford's on top of a train and my dad's like you should watch this it's really good and i'm like what's going on like kill my wife i don't care (laughs) i didn't kill my wife Would you like us to do a word-for-word word reenactment? <laughs> and now begins a 45-minute rendition of Alex and I doing Harrison Ford impressions. You know what I found out recently is that I'm going to keep this in because it's worth knowing. Harrison Ford got yelled at on the set of Star Wars because he used to, <laughs> he used to walk around with a fucking blaster. <laughs> like, pretend to shoot and just go pew! Like he made the noises and they were like, you have to stop doing that. We keep having to cut it out of scenes, which is just like a real case for personal growth in your art form. I think you start making your own and then eventually, you know, you're the fugitive. So that's great. Good for you. Um, I, I just, were we? I thought that was so funny. Um, we were talking about exploitation and true crime. So Like, one thing that I kind of wanted to talk about is that, you know, because there's this, now I think there's a broader conversation in, like, you know, what is the difference between, you know, a documentary um, talking about a crime or a serial killer or whatever, and, you know, then sort of the narrative version of that, right? Because I think, like, in the conversation, that gets, that gets considered to be true crime right like narrativizations of real crimes and it to an extent it is right and then there's you know but that sort of exists in a middle ground between like you know there's there's documentaries there's 
narrative versions of true crime where it's like, you know, this is extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile. And this is Zac Efron playing Ted Bundy, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's that. And then there's like, oh, this was inspired by this true crime, right? And where you can like pick out certain details of the case, but the names are different. And, you know, maybe you like the writer didn't research, you know, the specific details of the case and didn't, you know, like look into the families of the, you know, because they basically took the concept of the case and used it as inspiration, which is a different thing. And, you know, I think there's a conversation to be had about kind of like what artistic license looks like in that space. I I don't know. I think it's like how mindful are you of people's privacy? Mm. Um, I think that's like a question I like think about or ask myself, like people's right to privacy, who gets to tell what story and how and when. Right. Um, I don't have answers to any of these questions, but yeah. Um, I had a larger point that's escaped me. (laughs) I think, too, like, maybe it's, like, can you really control how anything's perceived? Right. Can you control how your, one, how you're perceived, how the story you're telling is perceived? Like, once you put something out there, it's hard to, like, you, you kind of relinquish control. Right. And all the control you have is, right, is the answers to those, whatever answers you find to those questions right Um, right which is like you know the author of this book in this book yeah never as where we're left off has no answer for that right right yeah no it it is interesting it is because i think especially because crimes are deeply personal stories Mm -hmm. that you know require very like intimate details about people's lives, but they are kind of the one place that like those intimate details would be put into a newspaper piece. You know what I mean? Like those things are in other cases, they would be protected or there would be no reason for that to be a news story, right? Like if you have, you know, I keep saying you, like you're personally (laughs) responsible, but if, if somebody has an affair with their husband's boss or some, you know, whatever. Like, none of that is going to be fodder for public discussion. Right. Until he murders you for it and it ends up on Dateline and then everybody knows, right? Like, it is mm-hmm. it is a way, you know, because it, it, it doesn't have to do just with the crime itself. It has to do with all the dirty laundry that comes out with it, you know, like, and... And that's part of it, too, is like, I mean, and it is, it's sticky because it's like, they are true stories. And sometimes that information is relevant, you know, that is relevant to the facts of the case. But, you know, again, I don't know. I mean, I guess it kind of just comes down to, to how you cover it. Um I mean, and I would hope I would hope that we would know that in 2022 that people would be like not writing stories to be like, well, she cheated on him. So <laughs> good riddance. Like, you know, and I, I think people are but they're, you know, obviously there's still a great deal of exploitation going on in in true crime. And it's almost like when facts start to like. You, know, you start to like muddle what is fact and what is like speculation and rumor and mm. 
you play into this like I think sometimes things play into this like public and he I think Devil House does this a little bit but it talks about especially with the white witch the public perception right you have those couple of sections where it's like the people from the town being like well she was always right x y and z or this is what I and like that kind of like yeah rumor mill if you will and, and the way that like that's like another layer of, of right. all this and I think Gage in some in this book like just can you control that right you don't you can try your best right but right yeah no it is I mean it's like it's the most insidious version of that yeah. John Green quote which is you know books belong to their readers or yes. whatever right and it's like that's great and to some degree I agree with that but like when it has to do with true crime right. like that's you know, that that can be kind of a bummer, right? When people start reading between the lines on something that is that is factual. That actually, and that brings me to, you know, kind of something else that um, I felt like was really important about this book. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the satanic panic. Um, the 80s. The 80s. And so um, for those of you that don't, uh, know or kind of aren't familiar with the satanic panic I mean honestly I think a lot of people that grew up during the height of the satanic panic are maybe less familiar with it because it's like it was just the ether yeah. like it was just the air in which they existed um, but the satanic panic is you know it's considered a moral panic and um, when you look into it I mean you know Usually when people talk about it, it's specifically kind of in reference to the 80s when it like hit its fever pitch. Um, but there are a lot of arguments that kind of say that the satanic panic like persisted throughout the 1990s up until today. Um, essentially what it was is it was, you know, claims of like over, I, I learned this today, over 12,000 debunked claims, which is crazy, of satanic ritual abuse. So it was you know, physical and sexual abuse, and then in some cases murder, um, that were sort of attributed to satanic rites or cults. Um, and it was propagated by, you know, local police departments. Um, it was propagated by, you know, communities and this kind of like, again, this moral panic that they had. And, you know, a lot of it rested on the testimony of children who, you know, basically were coerced by adults to tell a certain story. And then it ended up not being true and, you know, all sorts of like crazy stuff. But it does it. I mean, it even in terms of considering it to like still be active today, you know, if you take it and sort of extrapolate some of that stuff out, like the idea that a satanic cabal is running the entire world and we are at its mercy is like at the heart of QAnon, right? Like this mm -hmm. is this sort of like pure evangelical, you know, belief and the, the heralding of Satanism as like the be all end all of the moral world. Um, and as a, as a real and literal threat, continues to this day um so you know obviously that's kind of an undercurrent in this book in terms of you know the kids that the, the in terms of the story at devil house right and the you know the uh pentagrams and the right, you know all that kind of stuff theater. right right um 
and and a certain way with the white witch too right mm -hmm. like she is she is sort of cast as this you know i mean because it also has to do with like anything that has to do with occultism you know it's like it witches are a very scary thing to people and particularly then like witchcraft all you know it this is when like i mean not when it got tied but this was a starting in the 80s it was like this revamping of the idea that like witches and child sacrifice are like <laughs> right there together that the venn diagram is a circle that like everybody's just like waiting in cabins in the woods to like yeah you know hansel and gretel you um so i just kind of wanted to talk about that and the sort of places that it pops up in this book yeah you know the teens in the book who again spoiler if you're still listening and you have not read the book um, go watch Mindhunter instead. Like, go yeah. go do that. Come back to Do something to this. productive. <laughs> like, watching TV. Like, watching TV. Um, the teens in this book that are, you know, you learn are, you know, not real. Fake. Fake teens. Um, they're very aware of it. I'm going to isolate the clip of you saying <laughs> fake teens and put it in everything. Um, they're fake very, teens. They're very aware of this panic. Alex, like, who made you cry? Fake, fake teens. teens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, you were making a salient point, but <laughs> but I had an opportunity for a joke, so. Um, anyways. No, yeah, the teens, they're very aware of this pain, like, right. this panic and what kind of decorating this store, like, the fear it will instill. Right, right. They're really just trying to protect their home, and they play into this satanic panic. Yeah. Well, and it, it reminded me, actually, a lot of um, the West Memphis Three, which, um, if anybody's not familiar, um, I mean, is like it's an absolutely harrowing case because it was three second-grade boys that were murdered and, like, left outside and it was you know they went missing for a couple days and this town went into like a full panic and found them and then three teenagers were arrested you know for their murders and it was all basically like the stuff that we find out about you know the guys that lived in devil house in this book it, it's like very so you know when he says the thing about like a string of petty crimes like jesse miss kelly who was at the center of the west memphis three and kind of held up as like the ringleader um you know it was like petty crimes it was vandalism and you know shoplifting and all of this kind of stuff and he was like a metalhead kid who drew pentagrams on his binders and you know like stuff like that and it you know at a time in the this was the early 1990s where like being into death metal and you know, wearing t-shirts with skulls on them was still very much a thing that like put you as an outcast and made you a, marked you as a threat. And essentially these three teenage boys were coerced into giving confessions and, you know, Jesse Miss Kelly was sentenced to death and the other two, I believe, were sentenced to like 20 years to life and life without parole. Um, and they were in prison for a long time. I think, I think they were in prison for like, I want to say it was... I mean, it was at least 10 years. Like, it was a long time. And they ended up only getting out on an Alford plea, um, which is essentially 
a plea that says that you're not guilty, but that you recognize that the state has enough evidence to convict you, despite the fact that, like, the state had no evidence. It was just, it, all of their evidence was just three teenage boys who had confessions coerced co out of them. And, um, you know, and then Jesse Miss Kelly was doing that, was shit talking and making things up and, you know, kind of reveling in the fact that, like, he was at the center of this horrible crime that they claimed was part of satanic ritual abuse, you know, and he was a an 18 year old or 19 year old kid going like, oh, yeah, like, you know, basically fuck the establishment. Like, oh, what what are you guys going to do? Throw me in jail. And then he found out like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, but it is that thing of like, you know, that that tension of these kids going like, oh, we're just going to like we're just going to freak them out. Right. And you, and you knew those kids when you were 18. Yeah. Right. Like you we hung out with those kids. We're like, oh, we're just going to like fuck with them. And then it's like. But people take it as a as a very real threat, you know, and it does in cases like that have dire consequences, you know, yeah. I mean, not just for the people that are convicted, but also for the fact that like whoever committed this crime got away because you pinned it on, you know, and that's obviously not super relevant in this book. But, you know, that that's what happens in in the real world, you know, is is. You don't actually catch the person that did it because you got hung up chasing down three teenagers who, you know, wear black pants all the time. Like, yeah. that's insane. But I think, you know, we talked about this too earlier. The want to, like, control a narrative or mm. when something really horrible happens to, like, seek an explanation that you can wrap, kind of wrap your head around. That you right. can be like, oh, this is other than me. Like, I am not a part, you know, right. like I can somehow separate me, like a human being from a group of people or a person who right. are... This is not a threat to me because yes. I wouldn't be in a situation where I'd be right. around and you, a satanic cult of teenagers, right? Yeah, like it's, it's that thing. You know, you, yeah, you, it's hard. It's hard to believe outlandish, horrible things happen at a random. Right, um, right. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that it can, it ties back to, like, how the satanic panic leads into things like QAnon, because at their core, like, believing in conspiracy theories and participating in the moral panic of the satanic panic have the same, the same kind of nugget there, which is, like, it's easier to believe, right? Like, it makes me feel better to think that, and, uh, you know, forgive me, those of you that subscribe to this belief, but like, for example, that the mob killed JFK because it's terrifying to think that, like, we live in a world that is at the mercy of random chaos. And yeah, like one crazy guy with a gun could go and kill the yeah. president and effectively change the entire course of American history. Right. Like. That is too scary. It's way easier to think like, oh, well, this thing that I will never have any connection with that is this big threat that is this kind of nameless, faceless, you know, entity is is responsible for this because then it it kind of reestablishes order in some way yeah. and control. And, you know, so when you can take it all the way up to like a satanic cabal is at the, you know, 
at the center of why like global politics and economics are doing what they're doing and like it's not actually you know at, at lizard people and the whole deal like it there is something because because then too it's that your suffering or your angst or whatever you're feeling I think is concentrated mm-hmm. and has a there's a place to put it right like because you can fight against satanism but you can't fight against you know it not in the same way that you can bring the fight to like a couple of psychos that commit a random murder right like that doesn't feel it doesn't feel purposeful in the same way which is a troubling fact of human existence (laughs) i mean it's you know and i don't think the point is that like outlandish things cannot be true because sometimes they are right like shit's crazy out here it just (laughs) is like but I think the point is that when we're gravitating toward an outlandish explanation for something that is the opposite of the Occam's razor is like the most complicated convoluted explanation it's always wise to kind of take a moment and assess like why is this the one that's making me feel better? Why is, like, the thing that makes less sense the one that makes me feel better? Is this coming from me? And do I actually have the evidence to back this up? Because that's the thing that happens in a lot of these cases, right? Is that it's, like, in the satanic panic of it all, you know, people are blamed, but there's, and they come up with this elaborate, you know, satanic ritual and yada yada and it was all part of this grand thing and it is like it's based on nothing it's a house built on sand like there is no there's no physical evidence there's no i mean it's just like you know it's a couple of eyewitness accounts which are like the least reliable testimony there is and and that's it and like when you don't have that and you're just grasping at straws think it's always a good idea to kind of take a step back and go but why is this the one that feels good yeah and it reminds me of what um Derek who is one of the fake teens in you know it is again what is like you know supposed to be like an interview with them many years after the fact kind of said something along the lines of like you know we search for the stories that alleviate the burden or alleviate some burden you learn to find the stories you need Yes. Is what, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's all in that same section. And I think we're kind of getting at that. And I, I think it was intentional, again, for Darnell to set this during the Satanic Panic. Because oh, it yeah. also is like, well, like, you know, kind of everything. It lends itself all to everything we've been saying. Like, perspective. Who's inside the story? Like, what are your preconceived notions of X, Y, and Z? It just... Yeah, it, it, I think it helped the plot and helped the story and yeah. these questions that Darnell's posing to us. Yeah. Yeah, because that, that line is actually, like, it's in reference to the fact that the two, you know, the two guys that are living in Devil House at the time, like, bond over monster movies, right? Yeah. And, like, you learn to find the stories you need. Like, oh, people gravitate towards, you know, books and movies and comics and, you know, whatever that, like makes them feel seen or less alone or whatever. And that's a nice, good thing. But then there's kind of the other side of that coin, which is that, you know, you learn to find the stories you need, which is that the woman that killed these two boys, like, 
did it because she's an evil witch and she wanted to sacrifice them instead of the sort of muddier, yuckier truth of it all, you know? Um, The other thing, the one thing that I also wanted to just kind of mention, like he does, um, Darnell name drops the McMartin preschool. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a real thing. That is also like, again, if you're unfamiliar with the satanic panic and and kind of what went down, um, particularly during its height during the 1980s, because again, 12,000 cases that had to be like debunked and dismissed. That's crazy. Um, but the McMartin preschool case is essentially that, you know, I mean, it started with one kid coming home and saying something crazy to their parents, which is like just the territory of three-year-olds. Like the stuff that, I mean, last week my nanny kid told me that she wants her dad to be a car seat for Halloween. Like the (laughs) stuff that comes out of her mouth is just like, it's bonkers. It's always bonkers. That's what it's like to be three. You just like say whatever floats into your mind. So... Oh my god, I laughed so hard I cried and she had no idea why I was laughing and then she's just sitting in the back of my car going car seat, car seat! And I was like that was not the funny part. But yeah, wild. So three year old came home said something, a parent wigged out, told other parents and parents like one by one sort of started putting things in their kids' heads to tell these stories about what was going on at their preschool and it was You know, I mean, the kids are telling stories about, like, we were flushed down the toilet into a secret room downstairs where they, you know, did the ritual and whatever, and that horses were flushed out. Like, the pure physics of the situation (laughs) doesn't make any sense. And, you know, they're, they're getting child psychologists in who are, like, unlicensed and convincing these kids to say whatever because they've decided that that's the story they want to hear. And it ended up all not being true like all of it and I can't remember if the proprietors of the McMartin preschool actually went to prison or if they were acquitted but either way they had a harrowing ordeal and it was I mean it was based on nothing um there's a my there should be a my favorite murder yeah episode about that we were at it yeah and we LA. were in the crowd it's probably from 2018 so i'll try to find it yeah um you can hear us screaming no you can't but uh but we also, were in the crowd dressed the as... actor from mindhunter was there that's true yes the cameron Britton, who played ed kemper came on stage dressed as ed kemper so i think there's an interview with him in that same episode yeah, we'll try to find it yeah and link it if they put it up yeah but they do they talk about the mcmartin preschool um which is why i have all sorts of useless information about that just bouncing around in my brain. Um, So, okay. And then I think, I mean, the other thing that we kind of wanted to touch on was this whole um, castle doctrine thing. And I, I mean, I think it's important because as far as I could kind of surmise, that seems to be the key reason that we get those song of gorbonian chapters am i adding song of that's in the title right doesn't he say the song of gorbonian or do they just say gorbonium no clue am i making those it sound more chapters regal are not they're anywhere not up there in my brain <laughs> they gone um but 
probably took a long time to write those. Oh my god. Well, yeah. Like trying to write in specific period language. I've done it before just to like kind of fuck around and see if I could do it. And I only did like I went back to Regency era. He did medieval, which yeah. is like a lot of spelling. He actually went pre-medieval cuz Gorbonian is a a legend, right? Like he's he's like King Arthur in that we don't actually no, he if he like really existed, yeah. but he's kind of a a you know a Welsh tale of of legend. Um, so I think it the the one paragraph Wikipedia page said like fourth century BC or something like that, which is like bonkers. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I cannot imagine the number of primary sources that you had to read to even get a handle on that. Like, yeah. I, and I'm sure, like, he, in the acknowledgments, he thanks his wife for, like, I can't remember how he phrases it, but it's something about, like, basically that he was just, like, teetering on the edge writing this book, <laughs> that he was having, like, near-daily breakdowns, and, like, I mean, I can imagine that those chapters were the ones that he was just like, what if, what am I doing? Is any of this going to make any sense? I'm thrilled to hear that I didn't absorb one single <laughs> piece of information. Turns out the readers don't give up. um but no so i mean as far as i can kind of discern um the tale of gorbonian is that he like provided protection to kind of country farmers from their feudal masters um and then like also paid his soldiers really well to stop them from enacting violence on the peasantry so gorbonian was kind of a you know a protector of the layman and like that kind of thing and and um i mean i think that maybe other than i mean because you can't just decide to like write about gorbonian specifically because you use the term castle doctrine i think it's a little bit more layered than that but i think it's also like you know, part of what happens is that he just juxtaposes, right, like the fact that Gorbonian is hunting out to kill people to avenge the death of his father. And there's nothing about that that strikes you as a reader as being like out of school or indefensible in any way. And then when it comes down to being asked to believe that people had a right to defend their home, Mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, he says, like, the castle stopped here. Um, that then the fact that, like, you could question that is meant to kind of poke at you a little bit, right? Like this, I mean, I think this book, a lot of the ways that it succeeds are in the ways that it makes you feel uncomfortable by assessing your own reaction. You know, like like we said before, in this being a different book than you expect, right? Like, there is something about the fact that, like, oh, I was expecting this to be, like, a bloody show. And then it's not that you're like, am I a bad person for feeling that way? (laughs) Like, you know, it does, I think it kind of has that push and pull to it. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things where I, like, knew that section was there for, it served a purpose. Mm Mm-hmm. And was there to, like, make you think and to, like, extend, I guess, this, like, idea. But I really could have done without it. Yeah. 
I think I was trying really hard to figure out what the purpose yeah. of it was because I didn't want to be like, this doesn't make any sense. Why is this here? Yeah. Um. I mean, and there are, like, he does tie in those motifs other places mm-hmm. in the book, right? Like, there's a the whole thing with, like, the shield and the whole, you know, that kind of thing. And obviously he chooses to use the term castle doctrine, um, which he says is self-defense but actually i did a little bit of looking into this um i don't know because i'm still disappointed in myself for never becoming a lawyer but (laughs) it like so there is a delineation between castle doctrine and self-defense and castle doctrine is you know it's not like written law in the same way that self-defense would be it's kind of like what laws are based on um but the idea is like in in self-defense Part of what your burden of proof is, is that you need to prove that whoever was entering your domicile or, you know, in the case that you you kill somebody in your home, right? That you need to prove that whoever was entering your domicile had ill intent, right? That they were going to enact violence upon you. Like, which is why, you know, if somebody comes into your house, like, unarmed and you know, like, might not be a valid case for self-defense. But castle doctrine, all that is required is trespass Mm. and fear. Mm. So all you need to be able to show is that you, someone trespassed onto your space and you were afraid, right? And then he, I mean, he he makes the note that, like, this has been co-opted by gun nuts and, you know, whatever. Um, But that is essentially kind of the idea behind it which because it's broader than self-defense right like it gives more benefit of the doubt to the person that is committing uh, committing the final crime right like murdering or harming somebody to defend themselves and defend their property um it gives them more benefit of the doubt and i mean i wonder if like if the end because he says he actually says that thing about the castle stops here now I want to know if kind of the end of the tale of Gorbonian is that they find the person who murdered his father and that they mm. can't apprehend him because he's in his own home. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I and I don't know that. I am completely making that up. <laughs> but in my head, that makes a lot of sense, right? And I couldn't figure it out because, again, the Wikipedia page on this man is like, six sentences long it's non-existent if anyone's a gorbonian expert hit up the wikipedia page they could use you also they're hounded for money so if you use wikipedia a lot consider giving them a donation they need it i guess (laughs) (laughs) i guess i needed to be able to find this obscure information about this imaginary medieval man and that's what wikipedia does for us the wide expanse of knowledge what did you all think of that section? Did you? St- I could see a lot of people stop, stopping reading at that section. Yeah, this like was very much a book where the ending was crucial to I think the overall understanding and like enjoyment. Yeah, a hundred percent. And this, th- like, this is the reason books like this are the reason that I so often refuse to stop reading a book. Because I am always hoping that somebody is going to give me an ending like this that takes the rest of the book and makes it all make sense. Like, I do this with movies, too. 
where it's like, but maybe at the 11th hour, I mean, because literally it is like the last eight to 12 pages of this book that bring the entire thing together. Yeah. And before that, you're kind of like, well, what is, what's happening? We like, already talked about this a little bit, us two, but I was waiting. I was, the whole book, I was like, oh, is this mysterious friend going to be like the mysterious friend from like the Devil House chapters that I tried to put the blame on once he was like, I used mm, to live mm-hmm. there. Like, I always thought that like. You thought, yeah, like he was going to be Sarai or something. Yeah, that there was some... I even, I thought up to the moment where he doesn't name Alex, he doesn't give him Alex's Alex. real name. I was like, maybe he's Alex. And then I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, how would he have, I was you know... always trying to like untwist the story or like figure out its reveal. Mm-hmm. And, like, always jumping to conclude, like, doing exactly what I think Darnell doesn't want you to question. Right. Um, and I was doing it the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, the point, this was the point of this whole book. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. It's an interesting experience to have as a reader, right? To kind of, you know, yeah. again, it's it's that subversion of expectations yeah. that makes you feel that way, where you're like, and, I mean... You know, we got a little haughty about the marketing of this book, but I yeah. mean, I think, I think that's that's intentional in a way, right? Is to make you think that you're going in and getting one thing, and then to subvert your expectations. And you had said like, there are people on Goodreads who are like, this was not the book I thought it was going to be, and are like, <laughs> you know, incensed about a it. Goodreads review. Oh my god, I don't like the true crime genre. Then, <laughs> what are you here for? <laughs> what are you here for? <laughs> but like. You know, I think that that's part of kind of how this book succeeds is because yeah. when you are expecting it to be one thing and then it's not, it, and it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's an accusatory tone, but it is, it is obviously taking aim at exactly the thing that you expected it to be or a related thing to what you expected it to be. And so it causes you to kind of, you know, assess not just the characters, but assess your role in that consumer cycle, right, yeah. of, as a viewer or reader of true crime, like, um, which is not always easy to do, to, like, make the reader really feel like they're a part of the landscape of the question that's being asked and the discussion that's yeah. being had. I, uh, I thought it was Alex. Mm. I was, like, I, you know, I like oh well maybe the like devil house portion of this book is like what is we're supposed to like wrestle with or sit with or what's going to be revealed and i was like well i feel like it's alex mm-hmm. and i was like maybe it's derek i thought it was alex too yeah. i totally thought it was alex at one point i thought he said it outright and then i had to no. like go back and listen to it again and he didn't quite but i was like i mean that that was what made sense to me um and seth which is, very... is interesting that the mysterious friend disagreed yeah um, and seth is very much that character we were kind of describing in the satanic when we talked about satanic panic. yeah it's like just really trying to test yeah egging people on to kind of yeah yeah like there for the show of it all like yeah seth i i can't think of like, who specifically he reminded me of. But, like, at one point, Gage says, like, we all knew a couple Seths growing up. Yeah. And I'm like, we totally did. Like, those were, yeah. like, people that were on the periphery were, like, when you, like, that, like, hyperactive kid that would come around and just be, like, you know, 
into death metal but like an absolute sweetheart but just like a secret genius right and like way too much energy like all the time where you're just like dude like i loving the loving the enthusiasm (laughs) i need you to dial it down just like six to seven notches like yeah um i think overall i enjoyed it mm mm-hmm um like would would recommend but like probably with a with a caveat yeah um yeah, I would agree. Um, it's one of those things where it's like I would recommend it to people and I I do this really annoying thing where it's like, I loved this book. You should read it. I don't want to explain too much of it to you. Yeah. Like, which, which requires that people just trust me on the merit of my recommendations, which, of course, I think I deserve <laughs> because my recommendations are flawless. Um, so, I mean, I reserve that for people, I think, that have already tested the veracity of my recommendations (laughs) and know that they can count on them um but i think this would be one of those that i would just kind of do a like it's not what you expect and sort of like coyly slide it across the counter and then like disappear in a puff of smoke (laughs) i do think there's a blurb on the back of this book that's like this book is never quite what you think it's going to be so maybe i uh, shouldn't have been shocked Right, yeah, I know, but everybody says that all the time, and then you're like, especially you, because you are, like, you're the queen of figuring out the twist 75 pages before it happens. Alex is never surprised by anything. Alex has always been like, yeah, I knew that was coming. And I'm like, based on what? Like, she she always, she always knows. The thing that, (laughs) the thing that gave away the don't worry darling twist to me was very minuscule. (laughs) I remember, like, the year that everybody read Gone Girl. And I was like, I read this book, and oh my god, like, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, I figured out the twist, like, 20 pages in. And I was like, but you have... It's like, the the good part of the book is all the stuff that comes after the twist. And she was like, I figured it out. I already know. Like, and it was just, like, conversation over. I'm a little better about it now. I do... So, I do... There are books that I am not loving that I read just to, like, prove that I... Prove that you're right. (laughs) Uh, the Maidens. First of all, I could, exposing our toxic habits. I couldn't stand that book. Oh, I bailed. I bailed on that but one. But I like was five like, I know in. that I'm right about. Yeah. And I sat and I like finished the book and I was like, "Fuck this book!" It's like you read the whole thing, <laughs> and I read it in like two days. Yeah, I um, I could not get into that one, and I'm going to read it kind of out of spite because I had a feeling. I, like, got that book, and I was like, I have a feeling this is going to be bad. And then I started reading it, and I was like, this is worse than I thought it was. And maybe I'll have to cut this, but I think the man that wrote that book is an incredibly self-important douchebag, and I can't stand him. So it was a little bit of me being like, oh, well, aren't you so special? You know, don't tell me there's a twist. (laughs) (laughs) Because I, like, because I think that's, people are like, you know... There's a twist. I'm immediately like... You're on twist watch? Yeah. Yeah. I started reading My Heart is a Chainsaw. And I I don't know if there's a twist. Uh-huh. No one's told me. But I'm like re- paying very close attention. And I think that I am on to something. Yeah. I, I uh, got I'm into that one quick. Uh, so am I. <laughs> yeah. I, I got into that one quick. That's... um. So to kind of wrap, wrap this up, well, we'll talk about it, I guess, at the end. But we will be reading My Heart is a Chainsaw this month also um that will be horror that will be 
Um, it's a so slasher. That'll be when we disregard everything that we talked about. No, because it's not true crime. It's fake <laughs> crime. Um, the huge hypocrite. That's no. right. No. <laughs> Me saying <laughs> Jason's not real and immediately getting like sweaty and clammy. <laughs> like, oh no. Um, <laughs> there was a person in, our, in my neighborhood. Yes. Who would dress up as Michael Myers. So fucked up. And ride around his motorcycle and right. i used and to like just... rev it like and it that movie i saw that movie too young like pieces of bits and pieces of it yeah it scares me to this day if i i have a couple reoccurring nightmares one of them is michael myers, myers. i was just like lay awake and be like what if that guy snaps <laughs> <laughs> clearly he's on the edge <laughs> Oh my god! I think people in our neighborhood was like, "We're like, you gotta." He's didn't he have down. to stop after like one of the like a couple of the neighborhood moms yeah, were was. like, "You're frightening the children." Like, I mean, it was good, but it was spooky. Yeah, like as an adult, it's hilarious, yeah. but as a kid, you're just like, "What?" The yeah, I'd be like, "What are these?" Yeah, right. Anyway. Also, like that's so funny because that's so grounded in like like in tiny alex's head it's not like oh he's michael myers it's like no he's dressed up as michael myers and clearly that means he's unstable has anyone checked on this man like my this sister really a podcast uh, um, about my deepest fears yeah we really we we really uh we brought out some of our our uh, baggage this week so you're welcome um my sister watched halloween for the first time this week my sister's boyfriend hates horror movies she gets him to watch them with her and he is just like traumatized so they watched halloween this week and she was like it won't be scary it's an 80s horror movie like it's not gonna be a big deal they were they actually screamed from the family i was like that movie's like it's, it's creepy. creepy like it's and it's got some good jump scare like it holds up i mean it doesn't hold up from like a feminist perspective it's just no. my sister was like um obviously john carpenter is a pervert like there are boobs at every turn and i was like i'm not i'm not gonna get into <laughs> this with you right now like <laughs> the whole slasher genre is yeah. just about punishing people punishing teenagers for having sex that's the whole deal it's all gross it's all weird um speaking of accountability and <laughs> ethics but um yeah she was she was scared they were both like really scared and it's i was like, like that movie is scary it holds i up. enjoy the like 80s slasher yeah movies but that and that was probably like that's what like i think kicked that movie really kicked off yeah the genre but it yeah it holds up as being spooky yeah there i mean there is something like undeniably creepy about michael yeah. myers we'll get into this next on the more yes next on the more episode <laughs> um more on the next episode because that's all we're gonna talk about is yes. slasher movies and i expect this book to uh flip the genre kind of yeah its head um, yeah we're in the we're in the first pages and they're already talking about final girls yeah. and they're talking about, you know, I mean, this kid in the book as this teenager is like an encyclopedia yeah. of slasher movies. Um, so that'll be fun. We'll definitely get into that. And then we're doing Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch. So if you're not interested in anything we've talked about for the past five minutes, but you have enjoyed this podcasting experience and you want to listen to us talk about some historical fiction... Um, everyone knows your mother is a witch is historical fiction. It's also, um, quite comedic. So I think it'll be a fun little romp. Um, that one will be going up 
the first Tuesday of November. Um, that is going to be our regular book club schedule from now on. First Tuesday of the month. Um, in November, it does happen to be the first. Um, and then the My Heart is a Chainsaw episode will go out a couple days before Halloween. Um, and that one, we're just doing it as a bonus. We wanted everybody to have it before Halloween yep. to talk about some spooky, scary slasher stuff. Um, so would love to have you there. And if you join the book club for the low, low price of $5 a month, um, cheaper than a latte. So true. Excellent point. I paid $9 in Ithora for a, a like latte with oat milk a while ago. Like I was a stop. It was only this bit. I feel so old. I like, I literally walked out and was like, Your price of a goddamn <laughs> coffee. Like I am, my insides are an 85 year old man. It's so troubling. I, we get our electricity bill. Like I'm just turned into my father. You find like, yourself being your dad. I'm like, why yeah. are we leaving the lights on? Turn that off. Unplug that. Why was this so much? Um, it like shocks me every month. <laughs> my dad walks into a room. My dad will turn off a light in a room that I'm still in where I'm just like, what? Like it, but it is, it's something it's, it's in his it center. Lives deep within me. Like, you know how Iron Man, Iron Man has that like glowing core in his chest. If you saw that on my dad, it would just be like feelings about the electricity <laughs> and the thermostat. That would be, that's in his soul. Meanwhile, like, I spent $40 on a Bill's hat, but will not. Right, right, exactly. I almost spent $40 on the same Bill's hat, and then I was like, I can't justify it, and then, like, went and spent $40 on Etsy bullshit. Like, it's just like, I'm like, I'm getting two things, now it's worth <laughs> it. Like, what? Anyway. Um, it's a good hat. It's a really good yeah, hat, so... <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited about it. Um, the last thing we kind of like to do to wrap up the pod. Normally, we talk about the other book club at the end, but whatever. The, the there are no real time was here. There are literally zero rules all the time. Um, but uh, so we kind of like to talk about things that might scratch this itch. If you did enjoy this book, um, or in this case, maybe if you. We're expecting something different. We have a recommendation for that, yes. too, if you were expecting something a little bit different. Um, so, yeah, yeah I'm going to take it away. So, if, I'm going to recommend, it's called Reprieve. It's by James Han Matson. I think that's how you pronounce their name. Um, I'm going to read the good, um, the, like, little snippet um, from Goodreads, but it's, a chilling and blistering relevant literary novel of social horror centered around a brutal killing that takes place in a full contact haunted escape room. Ooh. And it, I'm recommending it because I think a lot of, I picked it up. I think it was kind of recommended or like kind of a slot into this, like more of a genre. Like you could read it if you were interested in like horror, that kind of that genre. And it, it is very much, a liter I mean, it says literary novel, but it is very much that. Um, but I, I thought it was good and well done. And it, it's kind of not what you expect. Um, definitely a trigger warning with this one. Um, there are some, it, it is tough, tough to read in places. But I think if you, I think if you liked Devil House, you might like this one. Fabulous. Um, 
I have a real softball recommendation for y'all, and this is going to be one that you're like, if you haven't already watched it, you're probably like, oh, God, I'm not going to do it. But season four of Stranger Things weirdly kind of confronts the satanic panic head on um, in a way that I think if you're unfamiliar with the satanic panic, like, it's not going to feel like it's talking about a larger societal moment even though it is um so like it feels like a very that part of it feels like a very like specific story you know it feels like oh like this is just happening in this place um which I think is part of what can make something like that good right like when you don't you know you look into it and then you kind of find out like oh my god this was happening all over the place um it's really cool it's heart-wrenching honestly like I know people are probably sick about sick of hearing about stranger things but like if you it if you haven't watched it yet like this is the season to watch like that some of the work that was done in this season of stranger things also like if you're a fan of horror because like the special effects yeah the season definitely bonkers stranger season four of stranger things yeah I think as the kids get older, it, like, kind of reaches more into, like, a spookier horror yeah. place. Um, but if you haven't watched it, watch the whole thing. Yeah. What are you doing? Watch the whole thing. It's it's fun. It's worth it. I know, like, I know you don't want to do the thing that everybody else did, but, like, it's fun. And yeah. uh, I have dressed up as Eleven twice for Halloween. Yeah. One year, Alex and I went as different versions of Eleven, and I carried an empty box of Eggo waffles as my purse. Oh, yeah. It was sick. We went to a Harry Potter trivia, and everybody was like, did you yeah. not get the theme? And we were like, we decided. We we were also like, we'll be able to answer some of these questions. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Not our kind of nerds. Didn't no. get it. We're so out of our depth. Um was like questions about things that were not in the books not in the movies like you had to know about like outside like tertiary sources and we were just like nah like um and then i think last recommendation Mm -hmm. if this book was not what you were expecting yes but kind of want that like the thing that you were hoping it was going to turn into (laughs) We we're we're gonna recommend Sharp Objects. Yes. By Gillian Flynn. Yes. Um, this is my Who Broke a Girl. <laughs> um, I much preferred this book to Gone Girl, so it's still one of my favorite of this genre. Yeah. Um, yeah, I read it. Yeah, I love Gone Girl, and Gone Girl does have sort of like this, you know, does have a kind of larger social question um within it that you know i mean i think now feels a little bit tame but at the time when it came out felt very like cutting edge um but that's a that's a good one to read as the one of us that finished it (laughs) it's a good one to read um but yes alex likes this one better it is good it's really good um they made it into a series on hbo i didn't guess the twist of this one didn't you? Oh, Whoa-ho. I have like an ink. Sometimes I have inklings, but yeah. I, I couldn't like fully. <laughs> I don't know why I said that word like that. Sometimes um, I have an inkling, but I couldn't fully commit to that. 
what I thought it was going to be. So, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's really, it's it's good. And the, the miniseries on HBO um, stars Amy Adams and Patricia... Her last name, all I'm thinking is Wilson because I'm thinking of Patrick Wilson, which is the guy from all the Conjuring movies, which is not who she is. Clarkson? Patricia Clarkson. Um, oh, who... and Sydney Sweeney. <gasps> is she the little sister? Is she? Ama? No, she's Alice. No idea. Wow. Sydney Sweeney, pre-euphoria fame thrilling but patricia clarkson is fantastic in it i mean she's an like a remarkable actress amy adams is great um it's very good it's all very good so if you want something that you can read and then immediately watch um yeah great one we were i'm i have a distinct memory of us watching that i think it came out right around the same time of that season of westworld that we absolutely hated or it was like right after because it was like our thing about Westworld. We'll be here for another 45 minutes. But yes, uh, you're right. It did. Yeah. Because uh, I remember I remember which wall in our apartment our couch was on, which is how mm -hmm. I know it was the same time because I watched it from the same vantage point. It was also the same time. We watched Marcello. We, it, yes. <laughs> and that Stephen King movie, Gerald's Game. Oh, that, my God. Oh. Oh. Every time I scroll past it on Netflix, I'm like, no. Do you just get like a visceral reaction? Because yeah. I do. Like every time I tell people about that movie, I'm like, it legitimately. Like, there are plenty of reasons why it's like maybe not a good movie, specifically the ending, which is trash. But like the whole middle chunk of that movie is horrifying. I remember we screamed and people in the hallway <laughs> heard us because they laughed. Like, it was so scary and it's so yucky. It's just yucky. Yeah. Um,. We did it. We did it. We're done. We did it. We did it. We're done. Um, thanks for being here. First timers. Hope you enjoyed yourselves. Um, again, if you want to join us on, uh, you know, on the feed, it's $5 a month. Um, we'll put a button in to subscribe. Um, so you just go to that page. And then once you subscribe, you will get the niche reads emails to your inbox every month. And, um, be able to just listen to the full pod and the playlist and all the other secret Easter eggs that we hide below paywall. Um, so five bucks a month. It's a latte. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Come on. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. Uh, love you. Cherish you. Respect your formidable intellects. We'll see you in a few weeks. Bye! Bye! Happy spooky season! Happy Halloween!